Well, again, good morning to everybody. Thanks for joining us this morning, especially if it's your first time. First time in a long time. We hope that this, uh, this space and this time on Sunday mornings together will be a great encouragement to you, uh, a great blessing to you. I have to tell you, it's been pretty cool this week uh, having the band learn this song. Every once in a while, I, I went across the chapel uh, looking for something or, or walking through the halls, and I heard Will just playing that song on the piano, learning that song on the piano. And there's nothing like hearing that man sing it out to the Lord. Nobody was watching. Uh, nobody was listening, except for me. Sorry, Will, I burst your bubble. But he was having his own little praise and jam session. And it was just incredible. These folks, they want to lead you to the throne because they've been there themselves. And they've seen it. They've tasted it. And so thank you, Gene, Susan, everybody, for leading us this morning. Thanks to uh, Nathan Harrison for filling in for me last week. Uh, we got to go be with Becca's mom for her fifth round of chemo. And so it was just a great blessing for the entire family to be together last weekend. So thanks for supporting us in all that. And I heard he did a great job as always. Uh, but I'm back and I'm ready to jump back into the story with you. Hope that you're excited about that as well. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, we're going through a resource called The Story. What we're doing is we're looking at the Bible in chronological order. Looking at all the major uh, narratives and characters and plot lines, how they all tie together to tell a much larger story. And hopefully how they all tie together to make sense of your story. Uh, if this is your first time this morning, you're joining us on a, on a heavy morning. We're in chapter 26 of the story. We've had some fun. We've been some highs and some lows. But this morning, as that video suggests, we're entering into a pretty serious uh, chapter, the hour of darkness, chapter 26. But I'm excited to share some amazing truths with you from this, this chapter. Let me pray before we do, and we'll dump, jump into it. God, we thank you for being the God who speaks and the God who listens. And so now, God, we ask that we will listen to you and that you will speak to us. We ask that you will show us, God, in your word, um, who we are, what we've been made to do, and where we're ultimately going to end up, Father. We pray that this story won't just be something that we listen to or hear about, but something that we lose ourselves in, God. It will be a story that we get to participate in and play an intricate part of. Help the story to come alive. Help us to come alive this morning through your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever noticed how people can look at the exact same thing and yet see something completely different? Ever seen that dynamic play out before? Most recently it was the dress, the infamous dress. Some saw white and gold, others saw blue or black. Remember those images that maybe were familiar to you as a kid, right? Some saw a rabbit and others saw the duck. Or maybe it was the old woman or the young woman. I don't know what you saw when you looked at those images. Or how about sports? A quarterback will scramble out of the pocket. And for you Denver fans, scramble out of the pocket means the quarterback runs away from defenders when they get close instead of just falling at their feet. But let's say a quarterback scrambles from the pocket, loses the ball while being tackled. Well, some will see this, they'll see a game-changing fumble, whereas the home team will see it as a guy being down by contact, right? Nothing, nothing too out of the ordinary. Thought of another one this morning. Some look at... Ryan, and they see a really sexy uh, counselor. Actually, only one person sees that, Chelsea. Uh, the rest of us look at Ryan and see a little short guy who wants to be a stand-up comic. It's amazing, isn't it? You can look at the same thing and yet see something completely different. Kings to you, Ryan. Kings to you. Now, this can happen when people look at dresses or drawings, even dropped footballs. But nowhere does this dynamic happen more than as it pertains to the death of God's son, Jesus. I mean, everyone has seen this image and this silhouette before, haven't they? 
The crucifixion of Christ is one of the most famous and infamous stories and scenes of all time. And although everyone's looking at the exact same thing, everyone tends to walk away thinking they saw something completely different. See, some people look at the cross and they only see weakness. Yet others look at the cross and they see the greatest display of strength. Some people look at the cross and they see the end of something, the death of something. Others look at the cross and they see the beginning of something, the, the infusion of life into something. Another group of people looks at the cross and they, they see proof that Jesus was not who he claimed to be. Yet others will look at the cross and say, see, he was who he claimed to be. Everybody looks at the cross and sees something completely different. The death of Jesus is quite possibly the most debated and most disagreed upon event in all of human history. It's easy to look at this one thing, so simple, and yet walk away thinking you saw something completely different. So the question that I want to answer this morning, that I want to wrestle with this morning is, what does God want us to see when we look at this image? What does God want us to see when we look at the, uh, the crucified body of his Christ? What are we supposed to see when we look at this? But like the new Sherlock Holmes character who always says, well, let me answer your question with a question. Before we can answer that question, we have to answer a few others. Before we can answer what happened here, we first have to answer these questions. How did we get here? Who's to blame for what happened here? And then I think we'll be able to answer the final question of what did ultimately happen here. So let's go through those questions in order. It's hard to read about the death of Jesus, right? To either do it in the story or in the Bible itself and to get to the end of the Gospels and, and to kind of ask yourself, how did we get here? How did we get to this point? How did we go from this little baby that we were talking about several weeks ago, right? This helpless babe sleeping outside with the animals. How did we go from that to this man being killed outside and being treated like an animal? How, how did we get here? How did a harmless and, and a homeless Jewish rabbi from, from Nazareth end up crucified on a Roman cross in the hills of Jerusalem? I mean, how, how did we get here? How did a miracle man who helped countless people, who preached a message of love and servitude and reconciliation, how did we go from that to a man being, being sneered at, laughed at, spat upon, rejected and hated by others? How, how did we get here? Well, like any good story, there are multiple plot lines involved here. If you've been reading along with us in the story, you know that for three and a half years, this man named Jesus, he ministered to people, especially the broken, the hurt, the sick, the lost, and the sinful. For three and a half years, this man went around telling us and speaking of God's heart and calling people to give their heart back to God. But this man, for three and a half years, he also spoke subtly and not so subtly against the Roman Empire and the Roman way of life, the Roman dream. And he also made illogical yet illegal claims for three and a half years, claims that he was God, that he had the same nature, power, and authority of the Father himself. So after three and a half years, people had had enough of this man. And because they were annoyed by him, confused by him, threatened by him, they ultimately decided to kill him. And although there's no retelling of this story that can ever truly do it justice, I do want to tell you the story. I want to take a few minutes and share with you how it all went down. In chapter 26, we read that Jesus enjoyed a final meal with his disciples. It's called the Last Supper. And at this meal, several significant things took place. First, he foreshadows how his body and blood would be broken and poured out for their redemption. Next, he gave the single greatest lesson on leadership the world has ever seen in washing the disciples' feet. And from there, he calls them to a radical new way of life that no one had ever heard about before. 
And although I wish we could, have, we could just sit at this table with them and spend some time at the meal, it's what happened after the meal that I want to focus on this morning. After the Last Supper, Jesus takes his disciples to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. In the garden, we learn that Jesus goes to God in prayer, but we also learn that he's perplexed, he's surprised, he's overcome by emotion. One man telling the story, Luke, uses the word agonia to describe the mental state of Jesus. He's so overwhelmed by what's about to happen, he enters into a, a condition called hematidrosis, which is a medical condition where you're so overwhelmed, you literally begin to sweat and cry blood. As he's experiencing all of this, one of his 12 disciples, Judas, comes up to him with basically a group of religious thugs, and they arrest him for more or less being a, a menace to society, a troublemaker. So they bind his hands, they blindfold his face, and they begin to strike him repeatedly on the head. From there, he's dragged before several different judges and political leaders. Before the night is over, he stands trial before six different people. Uh, but there's nothing just about this justice system. False witnesses are paid to lie. Arbitrators are completely arbitrary in their rulings. A trial is conducted at night in secret. There's no, no accountability. There's no adherence to the law. And each leader stands before Jesus. They poke fun at him. They mock him. They deny him food and water. They all have him beaten, and then they all pawn him off on somebody else. Well, the last man standing with Jesus is Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of the time. He's more concerned about appeasing the angry mob than doing the right thing. And so just to keep everybody happy, to keep the masses calm, he goes ahead and says, Jesus will be crucified. He sentences him to death. Now, it seems a little extreme to us. Like, come on, he was a pretty nice guy. You're going to be putting him to death? Well, he was claiming to be the Messiah, which is against Jewish law and punishable by death. And he was also, in claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be a new king, which was against Roman law. And again, that claim was punishable by death. And unlike capital punishment today, which happens quickly and relatively painlessly, Jesus is about to experience the most excruciating pain imaginable. Roman crucifixion was quite possibly the most horrendous, the most heinous act of all time. Get this, Romans would not crucify their own people. Jews would not crucify their own people. Romans were beheaded. Jews were stoned. Only the worst of the worst of the worst would be crucified. First, he would have been flogged. He would have been forced to kneel in the dirt with his hands tied around a large stump. From there, he would have been beaten 40 times with a whip called the cat of nine tails, a leather whip with shards of glass and metal in it that would rip your skin apart. After being flogged, Jesus would be mocked by Roman guards who would place a crown of thorns on his head and a purple robe on his bloody back. After the trials and the beatings, he would then, and only then, start the actual long, painful, humiliating walk to the cross. So at this point, a 200-pound crossbeam would have been tied to his shoulders. He would have been forced to carry that crossbeam several miles up a hill to a place called Golgotha. We learn that Jesus is too weak to carry this beam on his own, so an innocent bystander named Simon of Cyrene carries it for him. At the, as they arrive at the top of the hill, Roman guards would have nailed Jesus' hands as well as his ankles to the cross using eight-inch long metal nails. The word excruciating literally comes out of this moment. The word excruciating means out of the cross because the pain of the cross was unlike any other pain in human history. After the nails, they would have placed the entire cross in a giant six-foot hole, and there it would stand until you died. Now, while hanging on the cross, Jesus would ultimately die by asphyxiation. He'd most likely suffocate to death. See, because being in this position, it's nearly impossible to breathe. And so when you're too weak and too worn out to do so, you would just give up your spirit. You would breathe your last. 
So after hours of beatings, after a night full of trials, after being flogged, after carrying his cross through the city streets, after six hours of hanging on a cross, at 3 p.m. on a Friday afternoon, the life of the eternal one came to an end. Normally at 3 p.m. on a Friday afternoon, man, we're picking our kids up from school, we're taking a nap, we're making weekend plans, trying to head up to the hills before everybody else. But at 3 p.m. on that particular Friday afternoon, the Son of Man was killed by men. So that's how we got here. And it's important that we don't shy away from or try to shield ourselves from all this information. What happened here is historical fact. This is not folklore. It's not some myth. It's not some wives' tale. Well, I heard, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. This happened. This is provable. This is historical fact. Jesus went through all of this. So that's how we got here. But more importantly, that who's to blame for how we got here? Who's to blame for all of this? The second question I want to answer this morning is, is who done it? Or anytime you come across like a, like a broken toy or a broken dish or a broken window or a car accident or a crime scene, what do you always ask? Who did this? Who's responsible for this? Well, that's the question we got to answer when it comes to the cross. Who done this? Who's responsible for this? Who killed Jesus? Who crucified the Christ? Well, it's a question that people have debated and disagreed upon, even died over, right, since the cross itself. Some say it was the Jews. Others say the Romans. Some say it was Pontius Pilate, that governor we talked about. Others say it was the, the, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin court. But the ultimate answer, the final answer to that question, although tough to swallow, is God did. God killed Jesus. God did this. Let me explain. A friend-year-old uh, has a son named Samuel. He's three years old. Friend-year-old? Did I say friend-year-old? You know what I was saying. Actually, you had no clue what I was saying. Uh, a friend of mine has a three-year-old. Anytime I do that, by the way, you could just stop me and be like, whoa, we're... All right, so uh, a friend of mine has a three-year-old named Samuel. Samuel's at preschool one day, and he's building a little tower of blocks, a couple of feet high, and all of a sudden a little girl comes over and knocks the tower down. Well, he doesn't think anything of it, so he goes to the next spot in the room, another set of blocks, builds another tower up, and again, she comes and knocks it over. For a third time, he goes to a separate spot in the room, knock, uh, builds another set of towers, and then she comes over and knocks it down, which at that point, fin uh, Samuel finally looks up to his teacher and says, I think maybe she's doing that on purpose. I think maybe she's doing all that on purpose. Well, as you look at the death of Jesus, I want you to understand God did all of that on purpose. The prophet Isaiah, centuries before Christ lived or died, said this in Isaiah 53.10, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. In the first sermon after the cross, Peter says this in Acts 2.23, this Jesus was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And Paul says in Romans 8, God did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for all of us. You see, God planned it all, and by the hands of wicked men, he accomplished it all. But God's the one behind it. This was his idea. Just in case you don't believe me, Acts 4, 27 and 28, the early church said this. For in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, God. There was Herod, there was Pilate, there were the Gentiles, there was the people of Israel. There were all these players that anybody can blame for what happened to Jesus. But they did whatever your hand planned and predestined for them to do. They were pawns in your game. They were part of your plan because you wanted Jesus dead. And you did it. You alone, God. 
Oh, Mel Gibson directed a great film about all this, but God is the one who wrote this story. God is the one who wrote the passion of his Christ. There's no one else to blame. Okay, so why? All right, that's how we got here. I understand that a little bit better now. And, and God did it. That's a little confusing to me. But why? Why did this happen? What ultimately happened here? I feel like a coach or a parent right now who witnessed like an, an immature, irresponsible act of some kid or some player. Like, what were you thinking? Right? What, what were you thinking right there? Why did you do that? Why did you lick your finger and put it in an electric socket? What, what were you thinking? It's kind of how I feel when I look to God in this moment. What were you thinking? If you're the one to blame, then, then why did you do this? Well, the Bible tells us why. God orchestrated the cross so that, number one, Jesus could drink the cup of God. Now stay with me because this language might be a little odd to you. As Jesus is getting closer to the cross, several times we hear him say and we hear him pray, Father, take this cup from me. At one point when speaking of his death, Jesus asked the disciples, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? On the bottom of page 373 in your storybook, Peter does his best impersonation of a, a knight in shining armor, takes out his sword and just starts swinging it. And Jesus says, put your sword away, man. Shall I not drink the cup? The Father has given me. Again, this language is odd to us. It's weird to us, but it would not have been for Jesus or for those who knew the Old Testament. Because key passages throughout the story thus far have linked this idea of a cup to God's wrath. This idea of the cup to suffering underneath God's hand. Look at a few passages with me. Jeremiah 25, 15. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath. And make all the nations to, my, to whom I send you drink it. Isaiah 51, 17 says it this way. Oh, Jerusalem, you have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Revelation 14, an angel speaks out. If anyone worships the beast in its image, receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Let me ask you a question. What's the, what's the worst thing you've ever had to drink? What is the worst thing you've ever taken a sip of? Was it some medicine as a kid, like, no, I don't want to. Maybe some medicine as an adult. Was it some spoiled sour drink? You didn't expect there to be clumps and lumps in there, but there was. Well, for me, it was something called wheatgrass. I don't know if anybody's ever taken a shot. Anybody ever had a, a shot of wheatgrass? Yeah, you can go to a, a, a health store, some smoothie shack to get this thing. This shot of vegetables and vitamins makes you want to vomit. <laughs> I call this the drink of death. But that's actually what Jesus drank on the cross. It wasn't wheatgrass, but it was the drink of death. See, the cup that Jesus refers to, the cup that he drinks on the cross, it's a cup of God's holy anger, the cup of God's infuriation, his hatred towards sin. And, and don't tell me that you wouldn't be filled with a little wrath yourself if you were in God's shoes. Don't, don't tell me that, that if somebody kept breaking all your stuff, if your children kept disobeying you, if your spouse kept cheating on you, if your enemy kept attacking you, if your house kept falling in on you, that you wouldn't be a tad bit upset. Right? Don't, don't tell me that you wouldn't be filled with wrath towards any of that stuff. In fact, if you weren't angry about how it was all going, I would argue you didn't care about how it was all going. Because we learned a couple chapters ago, love and wrath go together. If you love something, you are angered when it's being broken. When you love something, you are, you are angered and frustrated when it is being ripped apart 
and destroyed and, and torn away from you or angered by that. That's exactly what's happening with the Lord and his creation. And so Jesus says, I will come and I will drink that cup. I will come and I will drink the fullness of God's anger and frustration and judgment against everything that's living contrary to the way that he created. This is a cup of retribution, a cup of punishment, a cup of penalty. And that's why the cross has to be so gruesome. That's why you have to see it like this. That's why the movie has to make you squirm in your seat just a little bit. This is what sin looks like. This is what hell will feel like. This is what the cup of God tastes like. And it has to be gruesome. And it has to be vile. And it has to make us squirm. I mean, wheatgrass is one thing, but the cup of God's wrath, that's another. But here's the thing, the, the physical side of this, the, the, the death part, the pain part of the cross, it's just a small part of it. In fact, it's just the beginning. It's not even the worst part of it because death is a consequence. That's how God shows his anger. It's, it's through death, but another way, it's through divine absence, divine separation. Think back to the garden. Think back to the exile. Think back throughout our entire story. When anybody, whenever anybody sins against the Lord, the major consequence, the worst consequence is banishment from God's presence, isn't it? They're kicked out of the garden. They're taken away from the promised land. You are separated from God. So death is one thing, but divine separation is another. And that's why Jesus was so upset about the cross. He's like, the pain, yeah, whatever, man, I'll go through that. But the separation, being separated from my father, and here's why. The deeper, the more intimate a relationship is, the more searing the pain of losing it, right? The closer you are to somebody, the more it hurts when you're separated from them. If my hamster dies, if I had a hamster, well, that's, that's one thing. But if my mom dies, or if my children die, that's another. If the waitress is mean to me this afternoon at lunch, well, that's one thing. But if my wife is at odds with me, that's another. The closer the relationship, the more searing the pain of losing it. Now think about this. Jesus has been intimately connected with the Father for all of eternity. He has never known a single moment outside of his presence outside of his power, outside of his provision. He's never known a moment away from his dad. It's like, Jesus, you gotta move out of the house. No, 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 it's not like that. He's never known a moment separated from the presence of his father. But that moment will come. That moment did come, it came on the cross. That moment came when he drank the cup of God's wrath because he drank death, but he also drank divine separation. That's why he says, my God, my God, why have you left me? Why have you forsaken me? Mixed drinks will mess you up, so I hear. But the mixed drink of death and divine separation, that'll do far, far worse. But here's the incredible thing, church. Here's the incredible thing about all of this. The pain, the shame, the death, the isolation. That is something you and I will never have to experience because it's been experienced for us. That's what's happening here. It's a great substitution. It's an incredible swap. It's a life-changing switch. You and I broke God's law, let alone his heart. You and I fell short of his glory. You and I were supposed to pay the penalty for sin. You and I were supposed to be banished from his presence. You and I were supposed to drink that cup. We don't ever have to because somebody did it for us. Now don't tell me, yeah, but I'm a good person. Man, stop singing that lame old song. You keep saying you're a good person, you, you overestimate your ability to be good and you underestimate God's definition of it. So just stop singing that song. You're not good. You deserved this. You should have personally experienced this. 
but you won't ever have to because Jesus did. At the cross, Jesus takes that cup that was right before you, that goblet full of God's wrath and punishment. He said, I'll drink it for you, man. I'll drink that wheatgrass all day long for you, brother. I'll drink it for you. He drank the cup of God's wrath, and instead, he actually gave us another cup of God's blessing. He gave us another cup of God's fellowship. He said, I'll go drink the cup of God's wrath on the cross so you can drink a cup of God's affirmation and love at his table. Woo, that's a, that's a switch right there, isn't it? One time we were in, in Hawaii. This was actually, I think, for our honeymoon. And uh, I went downstairs to the lobby the first morning because there was a, a little breakfast info session for everybody that was new. And they gave me a little ticket. A little ticket had a little number on it, like 100725 or whatever. Like, hold on to this ticket because we're going to do a little drawing in the morning, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, I'm sitting there. I'm not really listening to what they're talking about or whatever. Then all of a sudden, I hear 100752. It's like, oh, I had muffin crumbs all over my face. And my, it's like, oh, but me, me, me. So I go up and I take this little ticket and I get to exchange it for this like four by four outdoor adventure super pass through the islands of Hawaii. It's like, seriously, I, I give you this? And you give me all that? I, I wasn't even paying attention. I'm sorry. Is there like a, a test I got to take or some question I got to answer? Like, like I got to pay you later? Is it like, what, what do I do with this? They said, just give it to us and we'll give you all of this for nothing. And I can't help but think that's exactly what's happened at the cross, guys. He will take whatever we have, what little we have, or, or the wrath that was ours to have. He takes it and he says, in exchange for that, I'll give you so much more. And that leads us to the second thing that happened at the cross. Jesus died to drink the wrath of God, but he also died to demonstrate the wisdom of God. Look at 1 Corinthians 1.23 with me. It says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Everybody knows that the best stories out there, the best movies out there, they have this plot twist, don't they, at some point? No one saw this coming. At some point, everybody is dumbfounded by the shift in the, in the storyline. Maybe it's that moment in the sixth sense when you're like, wait, he's dead too. Or maybe it's Shutter Island. And it's like, wait, wait, wait. He's just as crazy as everybody else is. Or maybe it's that scene in Frozen when it's like, no, Hans is evil. <laughs> right? What makes these stories so great is that all of a sudden there's this, there's this shift in the storyline. You never saw this coming. That's what makes God's story so great as well. What happened at the cross is the single greatest plot twist ever seen. That moment in, that moment in the movies where, where your jaw drops, you're just like, what just happened? I gotta go back and watch the whole thing over again to make sense of it all. That's what God wants you to see and feel at the cross. Nobody saw this coming. Nobody. And how could they? It would take an infinitely wise God to think this up. Guys, guys what, if the, what if the righteous judge decides to be punished and sentenced for the guilty sinner? What if the father gives up his own child to save the other children? What if the master becomes a slave so the slaves can go free? What if the giver of life experiences death so you won't ever have to? What if the creditor pays the debt himself out of his own account so you can walk away? What if the king fights for the peasants so they can remain in the kingdom? What if the creator doesn't give up on his creation but gives himself to the creation? What if the teacher takes the test for you because you need a perfect score? Come on, that's the cross. 
All of that and more happened at the cross. And that's why it's the single greatest moment in human history. What happened at the cross is the craziest, wildest, smartest, the most amazing thing to have ever happened. No one could have ever seen that plot twist coming. That is except for God. And that's why the Apostle Paul, at the end of the book of Romans, a book that talks about the cross more than any other book, at the end of it, he's like, how unfathomable is the mind of God? Who could ever give him advice? It's like, that dude's smart. The cross should be this moment where we stand in awe of God's ability to be merciful and just at the same exact time, to be righteous and forgiving at the same exact time, to be holy and near at the same exact time, to be gracious and unchanging at the same exact time, to judge and set free at the same exact time. Think back for a second to those, those word problems you had as a kid, like middle school or high school. Two airplanes leave the, leave the field right at 4 o'clock, one traveling 80 miles an hour going in a southeasterly direction, one traveling 110 miles an hour with a headwind of such and such and a tailwind of such and such. When will they meet in the sky? Is that, is that the bell? Oh, the bell just rang. Oh, sorry. Right? I mean, those word problems. I hated those word problems. Well, imagine the problem that God found himself in. The law had been broken, and there had to be justice. The debt had been accrued, but there had to be a payment. The gap had been created, and there ha it had to be crossed. But his, but his heart was that of love and mercy and compassion. You think the airplanes is hard to solve. Think about the, the problem of humanity. That's no word problem. That's the world's problem. How did he do it? How did he solve that problem? The cross. He solved it all because he gave it all. Look at this word with me for a second. Do you ever notice that in the word forgive is the subset word give? Because in order to forgive, don't you have to give something up? Don't you have to give something away? You gotta give away your anger. You gotta give up your vengeance. You gotta give up your hatred. You gotta give up the lawsuit. You gotta give away whatever it is that they did to hurt you. You gotta, you gotta give away that emotion and the enormity of that moment. You gotta give it up. You gotta give it away. And you see, Jesus is able to forgive us. God's able to forgive us because he gave it all away. He forgives us because he gives us Jesus. It reminds me of the story of an African-American mother who lifted her son up on the shoulders, on her shoulders one afternoon to see the lifeless body of MLK at his funeral. She said, take a good hard look at that lifeless body, son. He died to set you free. And I wonder if God isn't saying the same thing to us at the cross. He lifts us up and says, Thomas, get a good look at that lifeless body because he died to set you free. What motivated him to do this? Why would you, why would you go through all of this? Well, that leads us to the third and final thing this morning that happened at the cross. He died to drink the wrath of God. He died to demonstrate the wisdom of God, but he ultimately died to display the love of God. I hope you're starting to see something this morning. Jesus didn't have to go up to heaven and like wrestle his angry father down to the ground like, don't hurt him, please. Have mercy, have mercy, God. That didn't happen at all. This was God's idea. It's not that God was up like, fine, Jesus, I'll hurt you instead of hurting them. Fine, you can pacify my anger because I'll send you to hell instead of sending all, no, 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 that's not how it happened at all. This was all God's idea. He's looking at the problem of humanity. He's looking at your problem. That you could, you could die forever, be separated from him forever. He's looking at that problem and he's trying to find a solution. He wants to be with you. He wants you to be with him. So he's devising this plan because he loves you. He could just say, whatever, let bygones be bygones. You know, you reap what you sow, you make your bed, whatever. 
that he loves you too much to let you do. So he's spending all of eternity thinking, how can I solve this problem that they have gotten themselves into? And then he goes over and he looks at Jesus and he says, son, I think I found a solution to the problem. See, someone's got to pay the debt. Someone's got to cross the bridge. Someone's got to drink the cup. And I, I could put it on them, but I love them so much, Jesus. Would you? Would, would you be willing to do that for them? And here's the amazing thing, guys. We know John 3, 16. Hopefully you memorized it last month. It was our verse of the month. For God so loved the world. Okay, the Father loves us. We get that. But have you ever stopped to think about Jesus' love for you? Imagine being given that proposition, that proposal. Anybody going to say yes to that? Anybody going to agree to do that? See, Jesus could have put an end to this process. He could have said, God, great plan. I'm out. <laughs> God, yeah, I see how that could possibly work. But there's no way I'm going to go through all of that. That's what I love so much about Galatians 2.20. It says this. You can't, you can't really see it. Bad graphic. But I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but he who lives in me. Right? I live by the life of the Son of God who loved me. Jesus loved me and gave himself up for me. The Father was motivated by love to devise the plan. The Son was motivated by love to carry out the plan. Do you realize that both of them love you? Both of them love you. That's an amazing thought. Knocked me over this week. The cross was God's idea based out of his love, and it was Jesus' cross to carry because he did love. So, guys, I don't, I don't really care what you see when you look at the dress. Like, whatever. I don't really care what you see when you look at the woman or the duck. I don't really care what you see when you see the quarterback fall and the ball pop out. Those things don't matter. I don't care what you see. But it matters for all of eternity. And I care deeply what you see when you look at the cross. You have to see what God wants you to see. You have to see Jesus drinking the wrath of God, Jesus demonstrating the wisdom of God, and Jesus displaying the love of God. And not only do I want you to see it, I want you to personalize it this morning. Uh, if you never have before, this morning is the perfect moment to admit a couple of things. Admit that you deserved this. Admit that Jesus did this. And now praise his name because you will never have to experience this. I'm going to lead us in that prayer. Gene offered, so I'm going to take you up on it. Why don't you guys come back up here. Let's sing that song again. Uh, second time through, encore. And I just wonder if this song isn't the perfect song. What do we do in response to this? Those who have already made that declaration, those who have already prayed that prayer, praise. Praise will ever be on our lips for the cross, right? Let me pray. This will happen. God. Wow, what a, what a plot twist. What a storyline, Father. We are we're just kind of sitting back right now, just amazed and confused and dumbfounded and overjoyed by what we see happen in the cross. This is an amazing moment, Father, where you took upon the world's problem and my problem and you, you dealt with it yourself. God, help us to see this morning that at the cross, your wrath was, was being drunk for us. That, Lord, you were taking that cup that was mine to drink and you drank it yourself, so I will never have to in exchange of that cup of anger and punishment and judgment, in exchange for not, not being who I'm supposed to and not doing what I'm supposed to, God, in exchange for that, for messing up the life that you gave me, you gave my life back to me. You gave me Jesus' life. In exchange for the cup of wrath, I got a cup of blessing, of overflowing joy. Thank you for that, that exchange. I pray we also see at the cross your wisdom, God that we could have never solved this problem on our own. It was too, too complicated for us to figure out on our own, and yet there you were because of your great wisdom, knowing exactly how to solve our problem. 
remaining true to your nature and yet also freeing us. What an amazing solution that was. Thank you for your wisdom. And we ultimately thank you for your love. Thank you for being motivated by it and for expressing it so powerfully to us at the cross. Help us all this morning to know that you as the Father love us and the Son loves us to the point of death. Thank you for that love. Help us to feel it and embrace it this morning. If we never have, God, we admit right now we deserve that. Jesus did that. And now I'll never have to go through that. In his name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing this song together as we close out the morning.